The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Before we begin our study this evening, we need to make sure that we're focused on the Lord Jesus Christ, that we are approaching the study of God's Word under the filling ministry and teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. The Bible teaches us that at the instant that we put our faith alone in Christ alone, we are saved. We can never lose that salvation. We enter into an eternal relationship with God, who at the instant of salvation adopts us into the royal family. Nevertheless, When we sin, that fellowship with God is breached. Salvation is never lost, but that ongoing relationship and the sanctifying ministry of God the Holy Spirit is stifled. The Scripture says that we grieve and we quench the Holy Spirit when we sin, and the solution is to admit or to acknowledge our sins to God the Father, and the instant we do, we are forgiven, cleansed from all unrighteousness so that we can continue our spiritual growth, our spiritual advance. We return to a position known in the Scriptures, abiding in Christ and being filled with the Spirit and walking by the Spirit. So we always make sure that we have a few moments of silent prayer before we begin to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are indeed grateful that you have given us your word that so clearly reveals to us who you are, tells us about all of your various attributes, and informs us about your grace toward us. Father, we thank you that your word is so clear and so precise, and that you have preserved it down through the centuries so that we can have this accurate knowledge. Now, Father, as we continue our study about you and your nature, your existence. We pray that you would help us to understand these things. We recognize that you are the knowledge of you is above our knowledge, but that what you have revealed to us is understandable, and that as we study these things, God the Holy Spirit makes them clear to us. Father, we pray also that as we study the implications and applications of these truths, that you would make those clear to us and that we would be able to apply them in our life in a consistent manner under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. So we dedicate this time to you for your honor and glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This evening we continue our study on foundation for life. There's only one foundation for life, and that is the Scripture, the Word of God. And the issue that addresses us today in our contemporary society is one that focuses on the concept of truth. 
In earlier generations, the question that was often addressed was the question of how do we know what the truth is? Today we live in a postmodern world where the issue isn't how do we know what the truth is, it's how do we know if there is truth. There are, as, as a result of so many competing philosophical systems and religious claims, a, uh, an air of skepticism and cynicism and doubt in our society that anybody can know what the truth is. In fact, anybody who comes along and claims that they know the truth and that there is one and only one truth is viewed upon as, as being somewhat arrogant and is rejected by the rest of society. Nevertheless, the Bible makes this claim. It is one that uh, human systems down through the ages have often scoffed at. In fact, as I pointed out in our opening lesson, when Jesus Christ appeared in his last trial before Pontius Pilate, he made the statement, those of the truth will hear me. And Pilate dismissively scoffs, truth, what's that? And that's where we often find ourselves today in the midst of a postmodern world, people around us who dismiss the fact that there is truth. Now, part of the problem with that is that this culture that surrounds us often impacts our own thinking in ways that we're not always fully conscious of. And we live in a world of moral relativism where people uh, don't understand absolutes and how those absolutes relate to all the areas of life, not just how we live, not just our salvation, not just our spiritual life, but that these absolutes that we study from God's Word impact every area of human thought. And that, to me, is one of the fantastic things about God's Word, is that it doesn't just address so-called spirituality or so-called spiritual issues, but indeed it addresses every dimension of life, so that the more we study the Scripture, and the more you plumb its depths, the more you come to realize how the Word of God gives us the basis for thinking about any field of endeavor, whatever it might be. One of the foundational ideas in the Bible is the understanding of God and what is known as the doctrine of the Trinity. And this is what we'll study tonight and next week as well, and is a crucial doctrine for understanding everything in the Bible as it relates to who God is and what God is doing in our lives and what God has done at the cross. That's the foundation, but it goes beyond that. The doctrine of the Trinity has application in a vast number of areas. It affects politics. It affects how you think about many different issues in philosophy. It affects how you think about marriage and family. It reflects, in other words, or impacts, in other words, every dimension of human society. Because what we see in the Trinity is that for all of eternity, there's not just a solitary God in existence out there. There's not just some impersonal force. But there is a triune God, three persons with one essence, who in themselves form a perfect society. And therefore, because the ultimate reality in the universe is not a solitary being who is before the creation of any creatures, alone. But we have a social God. There is a society within the Godhead. And because there is this society, everything that flows out of God impacts society. And because he is social, he's personal. 
And because he is personal, we can have a personal relationship with God, and we can see how his personality, how his personhood and the operation of that personhood within the matrix of a triunity impacts how we think about every dimension of society. Now, that's probably goes far beyond anything you ever were taught about or studied about the Trinity. And the, and the, the, the sad thing about that is that that just shows how shallow contemporary evangelical teaching is, because this is the kind of teaching on the Trinity that was understood at the time of the Reformation, that was clearly thought through in the developments of Christian theology in the post-Reformation environment that shaped the thinking of uh, the Puritans, shaped the thinkings of other Reformed uh, theologians as well as Lutheran theologians, and really laid the groundwork for modern society prior to the Enlightenment. But that goes far beyond what we're going to look at this evening. What we want to focus on this evening is what the Bible teaches about the existence of God as three persons in one essence, the doctrine of the Trinity. And the Trinity is true and correct, not because it answers so many of our questions about uh, different aspects of life, while that's true. It's true fundamentally because this is what God has revealed about himself in the Scriptures. No other religious system has anything like it. There are two basic doctrines in the Bible that we've alluded to, one we've alluded to already, that are unique to Christianity and as such testify to the uniqueness of biblical revelation. And these two doctrines are, first of all, that God is the creator, the creator-creature distinction, that God is above and beyond all aspects of creation. He's not part of the universe. He's not part of his creation. He is not some deification of impersonal forces. He is a distinct, infinite, personal God who is completely outside of observable creation. He is, in fact, the source of all creation. And the second doctrine that is unique to Christianity is the doctrine of the Trinity. No other religious system, philosophical system, has a triune God. These two doctrines together relate to one another and give evidence of the fact that the Bible is a uniquely revealed book. Human thought would never come up with something like this in order to express a view of religion and to foist it on other human beings because it would seem to be so outside the bounds of human thought. In fact, there are a number of groups that are sort of related to Christianity, in some cases spinoffs, that balk at the doctrine of the Trinity. Jews affirm a Unitarian or solitary monotheism, as do Muslims, as do Unitarians and Jehovah's Witnesses. They all balk at this, docu- uh, at this doctrine. And there are others who simply reject it because it doesn't seem to make sense to them. I mean, how can you have a God that is three in one? I mean, after all, if we're going to understand God, it has to be some kind of logically consistent uh, teaching, doesn't it? And for these people, they think that the doctrine of the Trinity is just an inherent contradiction. However, for both of these groups, whether it's the solitary monotheists or it's the uh, rationalists who reject the Trinity... A problem that they have is they don't properly and correctly understand the biblical teaching. 
And one reason for this is that the concept that God is both three and one, three in person and one in essence, is very difficult, if not impossible, for the finite human mind to comprehend. In fact, a while back, a friend of mine was witnessing to a woman who was a Jehovah's Witness. And in that conversation, she made the statement, quote, I can't believe in a God who I can't understand. To which my friend replied, Now, don't you just think that a God who created everything in the universe was radically different from anything in the universe that you and I have ever experienced, might just might have various characteristics that are beyond our comprehension and understanding? And of course, the answer is yes. She didn't have an answer to that. See, that's the problem. If we try to get God into a box that we fully comprehend, we've reduced God to nothing more than a larger replica of man. We sort of make him Dr. God and we're Mr. Man. But what the Bible teaches is that, that God is the Creator. He is vastly different from anything in the creation. In fact, the Bible clearly states that He is a God whose ways are not our ways and whose thoughts are not our thoughts. The Bible clearly teaches that the Creator God of the universe exists eternally as a plurality and not as a singularity. There are three persons in the Godhead. So to explore this, what I want to do is start where the Bible starts with the Old Testament. And I want to trace this through the Old Testament and the New Testament so that we can see that the biblical teaching on this is totally consistent and that the doctrine of the Trinity, much to the uh, contrary to some modern theologians, is clearly taught and embedded within the Old Testament and that it is unpacked and developed even more in the New Testament. Now, as we look at this, I want you to keep in mind that the doctrine of the Trinity isn't just some quaint or strange theological oddity that somehow shows up in Christianity. That's what you'll hear today. You'll hear some folks say, well, you know, those folks at the Council of Nicaea invented the concept of the Trinity, and it comes from Greek philosophy. Let me say, I haven't read everything there is in Greek philosophy. I have studied Greek philosophy, and there's nothing like the Trinity in Greek philosophy. This is just another, uh, another kind of statement you'll often find professors and universities throw out because they can get away with it with uh, your typical ignorant undergraduate. But there is nothing like the Trinity in any other uh, system of thought. Well, let's begin by understanding the concept. The term Trinity itself is a term that is not found anywhere in the Old Testament or the New Testament. Now, that doesn't mean it's not true. It just means that there are certain terms that we use to describe biblical teaching that aren't necessarily found in the pages of Scripture. And the word Trinity is one of those. In the early centuries of Christianity, as the early theologians were struggling to express and define the concept of the deity of Christ and his relationship to God the Father, there was one theologian by the name of Tertullian who coined the word Trinitas, a Latin word. And he coined that to describe what the Bible teaches about God's existence as three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, who have the same identical essence, but yet are a, a unity where one can be said to be in complete union with the other. 
that they are co-equal and co-eternal, and they equally share all the attributes. Now, we express that this way in our doctrinal statement at West Houston Bible Church. You'll notice something, uh, something familiar in the first part of the definition. We believe in one God who is sovereign, righteous, just, eternal love, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, immutable, and truth in his essence. That describes what we covered the last couple of weeks. This is the, a summary of the essence of God. Different theologians break it down in different ways, but this is the way we break it down here in, in a core, understandable manner. This describes his essence. But in his person, we go on to say, he exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All three persons of the Godhead are co-equal and co-eternal and co-infinite. Now, what does that mean, that last sentence? It means that they are co-equal, that there is no member of the Trinity that is has more knowledge or more presence or more power than another. They are equal in power. They are equal in presence. They are equal in knowledge. They are equal in love. They are co-equal. They are co-eternal. That means that there never was a time when the Son did not exist. There never was a time when the Spirit did not exist. That billions and billions and billions of years ago, and if we could measure eternity before time began, there always was a Son, there always was a Holy Spirit, there always was a Father. They never existed apart from one another. And these are indicated in various scriptures that are listed here, which we'll also cover in the course of our study on the Trinity. So this is what we believe. One of the things I want to do as we go through our, our basic series here is to bring up how it's stated in our doctrinal statement so that you can understand it a little better. And hopefully as time goes by and, and uh, as new people come to join our congregation, that they can take this basic series and it will help them understand uh, our own doctrinal statement, what we believe and why it, things are said the way they're said and why we believe things the way we do, and why certain things are included in the doctrinal statement when perhaps they may not be included in other folks' doctrinal statements. So this is just an ongoing education. Now, what does the Bible teach? Point number one. The Bible clearly teaches that there is one and only one God. This is the clear testimony of both the Old and the New Testament. For example, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, in the first commandment of the Ten Commandments, God says, You shall have no other gods beside me. It's a clear statement of monotheism, that there is only one God. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning, God created. It excludes pantheism. It excludes pantheism, uh, polytheism. It excludes this idea of a multiplicity of gods. But in that first verse, in the beginning God, we have a Hebrew word for God that has within its meaning the idea of a trinity. And that is the Hebrew word Elohim. The singular form of the noun is El, E-L, which means God. It's sort of a generic Hebrew word for God, much as our word for God is. It's not his proper name. When God has a proper name or specific name, it is the name Yahweh. But in Genesis 1-1, we have Elohim, and it is a plural. Now, that plural implies a multiplicity of person. It's not just one. 
However, what you may run into at times is people who say, well, you know, that really doesn't imply the Trinity at all. In the Hebrew, there's such a thing as a plural of majesty. In fact, that's usually what I was taught when I was uh, uh, taking Hebrew when I was in seminary, is that you can't hang too much on the term Elohim because it's a plural of majesty. But if that were true then the plural of majesty would utilize a singular form of the verb. Let me see if I can give you an illustration in English. In English, you have, let's say you have a sentence with a singular noun, the man. That's the subject. And we're going to say the man applauds. So we have a singular noun as the subject, and we have a plural verb. It ends with an S. You wouldn't say the man applaud. Immediately you recognize that's not good English. Now, if we were to change the subject to the individual man to a plural noun, the people, that's a plural noun, we'd say the people applaud. You see, the verb has to agree with the noun. But there are in English what we call collective nouns. For example, the word crowd is a collective noun. There are many people in the crowd, but it's treated as one unity. So we would say the crowd applauds. Even though the crowd includes many different people, we would never say the crowd applaud. The crowd applauds. So we have to have subject and verb agreement. Now, in Hebrew, if Elohim were being used as a plural of majesty, then it would have a singular verb with it, treated like a collective noun in English. But it doesn't. When you have Elohim, it has a plural verb which indicates that it's talking about a plurality of person in the Godhead. We find this in such verses as Genesis 1.26. When God creates man, we read, Then God, that is Elohim, said, plural verb, Let us, what's the pronoun there? Plural. Let us make man in our image. It's not simply using the plural form of the noun Elohim, but we have it backed up with plural pronouns. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and then let them rule over the fish of the sea, etc. So you have plural nouns and plural pronouns that indicate that there are multiple personalities in the Godhead. Another passage where we find something similar to this is in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6 is that tremendous scene when Isaiah is brought into the presence of God and he hears the uh, seraphim singing, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God Almighty. And the very fact that in verse 3 they uh, repeat Holy three times is a, an indication of the Trinity of three persons. Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God Almighty. But in Isaiah 6, 8, Isaiah says, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And the verb there, to go, is a plural verb with a plural noun. So it's not a singular there, uh, which it would be if we were talking about a single God. There is a us. So the, the verb that is used indicates a plurality in the Godhead, not a collective a plural of majesty. Well, over against these examples, and there are many more in the Scripture where we have this plural pronoun used, you have clear statements such as Deuteronomy 6.4. Now, this is where folks kind of stumble a little bit. 
Well, wait a minute. I thought the Jews were strict monotheists. Well, modern-day Jews are strict monotheists. Modern-day Jews and modern-day Judaism, which really has its roots in post-Christian rabbinical teaching. I understand there's a lot of its roots are in the Pharisaism and the, uh, of, of the pre-Christian period that was really pulled together and was evident as the, among the Pharisees when Jesus walked on the earth and, and he had his conflict with the Pharisees. But in the post-destruction period, after, seven, after A.D. 70, when Jerusalem was destroyed, the Pharisees that survived gathered together and they really had to institutionalize Judaism in order to uh, preserve it. Now, what happened between... Uh, the, the return to the land in, in 516 and their uh, time when they were expelled from the land in, in AD 70. What was the most significant thing that happened? The Messiah came. Jesus appeared. And he made a claim that he was God. What was interesting is there's uh, several uh, rabbinical documents from that period of time, 2nd, 3rd century B.C., up into the 2nd century A.D., where rabbis made it clear that they understood the Old Testament taught a plurality in the Godhead. Now, they didn't have the word Trinity, but they did understand that the, the pronouns, the plural of Elohim, and some of these other statements indicated that there was a plurality in the Godhead. But when Christianity came along and made this claim specific and related it to Jesus, they had to... to uh, sort of, as it were, pull in the fortifications and put up the walls and say, no, there's no plurality in the Old Testament. And so the theology of Judaism hardened into a strict monotheism, but this only developed in the 2nd, 3rd, 4th century A.D. in reaction to what Christianity was teaching. Now we go back to Deuteronomy 6.4, which is a very important verse in Judaism. It's known as the Shema because the first word in the verse is here, which is the Hebrew word Shema, and it's, a, it's an imperative. Hear, O Israel, listen, pay attention. The Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Now, this is how it's usually translated, and I'm going to show you why this is a mistranslation. Because this translation makes it appear as if it's a strict or unitary monotheism or solitary monotheism. Deuteronomy 6, 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Now, the Hebrew word that is translated one here is the word echad. That's the standard uh, word meaning one in Hebrew. Now, there's another verse that relates to this and uses the same word echad, and that's in 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 1. This is how you understand what words mean, as you compare their usage in various contexts. Now, the claim that is made is that Deuteronomy uh, 6.4 indicates uh, a solitary being, that the Lord is a solitary being, one person. However, 1 Chronicles 29.1 shows that the word echad really has a different nuance to it. There we read, Then King David said to the entire assembly, My son Solomon, whom alone God has chosen... Now, what is that saying? That is ch- saying that Solomon is chosen uniquely or distinctly apart from all others. It's not saying that, that my son Solomon, who is one singular person. 
It is saying He is unique. He is distinct from all others. He has been uh, isolated. There are no others whom God has chosen. He is the only one that God has chosen. And so it could be translated, My son Solomon, who, who is the only one that God has chosen. Now, if we take that idea and we plug it back into the use of Echad in Deuteronomy 6.4, we would read, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. In other words, the statement isn't, isn't that there's only one Yahweh. The statement is that Yahweh is the only God. There is no other God. So to place upon this the burden of solitary monotheism completely violates the meaning of that word one. It is the Lord alone. He is the only God. There is no other God. Further, we see from the use of this word echad in in the Old Testament is it includes the idea of plurality within it. And we see that from a well-known verse over in Genesis 2.24. Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become what? One flesh. See, it's a unity that contains within it a multiplicity. So that Echad can have the idea of something alone and distinct from anything else, but it also includes within it that idea of a diversity or a multiplicity of persons. That as a man and a white woman come together as husband and wife, they are one flesh. That doesn't mean there's only one person there. There are two persons, but they are a unity. So the idea here is, with Echad is the idea of a unity, an idea of a distinctiveness that's distinct from any other God. So the Old Testament recognizes within its terminology that there's a multiplicity of person in the Godhead. We also see this in, in some other passages. For example, we see it in reference to the uh, being that's in the Old Testament, the angel of Yahweh. The angel of Yahweh. And the angel of the Lord is clearly identified as God in such passages as Genesis 16, 6 to 11, as well as in Judges chapter 6. Those are your two central passages for the angel of the Lord as God. In Genesis 16, which we've studied, the angel of the Lord tells, virtually tells Hagar, I am God, says, I am the one who will protect you. And Hagar concludes the meeting by recognizing that this is the Lord who sees and provides and identifies the angel of the Lord as the Lord. In Judges chapter 6, Gideon also refers to the angel of the Lord as the Lord. And in fact, the narrator says in one verse, the the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon. And the next verse says, the Lord said to Gideon. So it is clear from these passages that the angel of the Lord is fully divine and is the Lord. But there are other passages, such as Zechariah 1, 12 through 14, where it shows that there are distinct personalities within the Godhead. Distinct personalities. The Lord said to the angel of the Lord. So on the one hand, the angel of the Lord is viewed in various passages as being fully God. And in other passages, the angel of the Lord is seen as a distinct personality communicating to the Lord. So this, again, shows that the Old Testament reveals that there are multiple personalities in the Godhead. Not only do we have passages such as the angel of the Lord, but we also see it in a number of places in the book of Isaiah. 
For example, in Isaiah 48:12, we read, Listen to me, O Jacob, even Israel whom I called. I am he, I am the first, I am also the last. Now, where have we run into that verbiage? We've studied that in our study of Revelation. I am the first and the last. So this is Yahweh talking, and Yahweh identifies himself as the first and the last. And then when we get into the New Testament in Revelation, this title, the first and the last, is applied to Jesus. See, John, who wrote the book of Revelation, is a strict monotheist. Now, he hasn't gone through any sort of crisis of faith and become a polytheist. He recognizes that Jesus Christ is fully God and he's still a monotheist. So Isaiah 48:12, I am the first, I am also the last, the first and the last. And this is applied to Jesus in Revelation 22:13, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. Now we go on to read in Isaiah 48, Surely my hand founded the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. Now let me suggest that this phrase, my hand, is not talking about a physical hand. Of course, we know that God doesn't have a physical hand. So this is an anthropomorphic term where a, a, a portion of the human body is attributed to God in order to communicate something about God's plans, purposes, and his uh, policies. The use of the term hand here is a personification of his use of the Lord Jesus Christ in creation. We know that from uh, Colossians 1.17. We know it from John 1, verse 3, that the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who actually performed the creation work. So here we see an indication that surely my hand founded the earth and my right hand, that is, who the Lord Jesus Christ is, the right hand of God, spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand together. Assemble all of you and listen. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him. He shall carry out his good pleasure on Babylon. And his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. Now, verse 15 and 16 really gives us the, the key here for the Trinity in the Old Testament. I, even I, have spoken. Indeed, I have called him, I have brought him, and he will make his ways successful. Come near to me... Listen to this. From the first, I have not spoken in secret. From the time it took place, I was there. And now, the Lord God has sent me. Who's speaking? Lord Jesus Christ. Pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord God has sent me and His Spirit. So we have three persons in verse 16. The Lord God, the Speaker, me, and His Spirit. And people say you don't find the Trinity in the Old Testament. And this is just one of many passages that indicate this in the Old Testament. Furthermore, we see in the Old Testament that the Messiah that was promised would be both fully divine and fully human. Isaiah 9, verse 6 reads, For unto us a child is born. Birth is, relates to his humanity. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. That term son there relates to his deity. He is eternally the son of God. And so God the Father gave his son to come to earth to die on the cross and pay the penalty for our sins. That's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his unique son that whosoever believes on him should not perish but have everlasting life. The government will be upon his shoulder, Isaiah 9.6 says, and his name will be called Wonderful, this is a Hebrew word that only applies to deity, Counselor, Third, Mighty God. In other words, the child that is born will be called God. 
Why? Because he is God. He is the eternal second person of the Trinity who is fully God. Everlasting Father. Actually, that's a poor translation. It should be Father of Eternity, indicating that he is eternal in his nature and Prince of Peace. Then again, we have Micah 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem Ephrata, this is a prophecy made some uh, 400 years, four to 500 years before the birth of Christ. But you, Bethlehem Ephrata, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, you're a small village, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel. So it indicates the birthplace of the Messiah in, in Bethlehem. And then it says, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. So it indicates, again, that there's going to be a human born in the location of Bethlehem, yet this human also is fully divine because he is eternal and he has always existed. So the Old Testament predicts a divine and human Messiah. This is also seen in other passages that we've studied, such as the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, 8 through 14, that God promised to David that one from his lineage would sit on the throne of, of David forever and ever. That indicates that he has to be either an eternal succession of gods, or excuse me, an eternal succession of sons, or one who, 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 where the succession ends in one who is eternal. Other passages indicate the humanity and the deity of the Son, such as Psalm 2. Psalm 110, Isaiah chapter 53. All of these indicate both the humanity and the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we realize that when we get into the New Testament, Jesus Christ was crucified because he claimed to be God. He made that claim very clear and under numerous occasions. It said in John 10 verse 30, I and the Father are one. There we have that word again, and Jesus may have uh, said it in Aramaic. We don't know. It's written down in the New Testament as Greek, but the root idea of that would be the same idea that you find in the Old Testament. That is, the Lord our God is the Lord alone. It is a unity there. Uh, same thing would be true of Jesus. He is claiming to be complete unity with the Father. Now, when we get into the New Testament, we see this plurality is supported in numerous other verses. For example, after the resurrection, before Jesus Christ ascended to heaven, he's giving his parting instructions to his disciples. And in Matthew 28:18 and 19, Jesus said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That's a claim, again, that relates to deity. Then he gives them their marching orders. He said, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name. Now I want you to notice that. What kind of noun is that? See, this is why grammar is important. The name. Plural or singular? Singular. The name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. See, Jesus didn't say in the names of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If this was tritheism or the idea of three gods, Jesus would have said in the names of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But he recognizes that it is one God in complete unity, the same essence, the same authority, and so they are to be baptized in the singular name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
And then in Matthew 28, 20, he says, Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He can only claim to be with him always if he himself possesses the divine attribute of eternality. Furthermore, we have uh, 2 Corinthians 13, 14, where the Apostle Paul closes his epistle by saying, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, that is the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Here we have another clear Trinitarian statement that all three members have equal attributes and are nevertheless united as one in the Godhead. So our point here is to show that the idea of plurality isn't the idea of multiple gods, but one God who exists uh, in three persons, yet one essence. Now, another thing to understand is that everything, everyone who wrote in the New Testament was a devout monotheist. I mean, these were all Jews. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, uh, Paul. Paul was trained to be a rabbi. He was a strict monotheist. But he had no problem with assigning to Jesus verses from the Old Testament that were attributed to God. Now, that's a powerful statement. In the Old Testament, there were various passages that attributed certain things to God, and then in the New Testament, these are attributed to Jesus by men who are monotheists. Now, let's back up a minute and just look at a couple of verses which emphasize their monotheism. Psalm 96, verse 5, For all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. The distinctiveness of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Isaiah 44, verse 6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. What does that tell you? A multiplicity of persons. Right there in Isaiah 44, 6, The Lord, the King of Israel, on the one hand, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, on the other hand. I am the first and I am the last. Beside me there is no God. That's that idea of exclusivity. There's only one God, but He exists in a multiplicity of persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Isaiah 44, 7, Who can proclaim as I do? Then let him declare it and set in order for me, since I appointed the ancient people and the things that are coming and shall come. God is distinct from all other gods. Furthermore, we have uh, Isaiah 45, uh, excuse me, 44, 8, Do not fear nor be afraid. Have I not told you from that time and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. See, the Old Testament is clear that there's one and only one God. This is further supported by Jesus in the New Testament. He said to him, uh, Why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. See, Jesus is a strict monotheist, but he's Trinitarian in his monotheism. John 5.18, Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. You see, we can't come along and just say that Jesus was a good teacher, that he was a religious teacher, that he was a prophet. He's either telling the truth or he's lying. 
And the truth that he told was that he was equal with God, that he was one with God, and that because he was eternal God incarnate in the flesh, he could die on the cross for our sins. He was qualified to go as our substitute. And he could pay the penalty for our sins. And this is the most important aspect of the doctrine of the Trinity because it shows us that we have a Savior who is not just a man. If he was just a man, he could die for nobody's sins but his own. But because he was the God-man, and because whatever he did as a person had infinite value, he could die for the entire human race. And he could pay the penalty for every single sin. Jesus clearly claimed to be God. We can't escape it. He said in John 8:58, Most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was... I am. And when he used that word, I am, it's the Greek word, Greek word, ego, me, which was a translation of the Old Testament for Yahweh in Exodus 3.14, when Moses wanted to know from God, say, well, when I go to the Jews, who do I say sent me? And God said, I am who I am. So there were seven different times when Jesus made clear statements using this phraseology, ego, me, indicating that he was God. He said, before Abraham was, I am, claiming eternity. He said, I am the resurrection, the life. He said, I am the good shepherd. He said, I am the door. And he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. It is the doctrine of the Trinity that undergirds everything the Scripture says about salvation. Without the Trinity, there is no salvation. Without the Trinity, there is no Christianity. For if Christ is not God and our Savior, and the Messiah predicted in the Old Testament, then there is no Christianity. And the Scripture is clear that salvation is based exclusively upon Him. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And in Acts 4, Peter said, For there is no other name given among, he- among men whereby we must be saved. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to begin to understand what the Scripture teaches about your uh, triunity, understanding that as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you have existed throughout all eternity. And that because there are three persons We know that ultimately you are a personal God and we can have relationship with you. And that relationship is made certain because you sent your Son, the eternal second person of the Trinity, to die on the cross as a substitute for our sins. And that by faith alone in Christ alone we can have salvation. It's not based on who we are or what we do because we can never measure up to your perfect righteousness. But in Jesus Christ we receive His perfect righteousness when we trust in Him. And it is on that basis that we have access to you and that we are adopted into your family, that we are born again, that we receive eternal life. Now, Father, we pray that there's anyone here this evening who is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they will take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. The Scripture says, These are written that you may know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you may know that you have eternal life, and that life is through belief in his name. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we've studied this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.